0: world war now everybody i'm your host conrad franz we have a great show set up here for you tonight it is december 2nd 2022 i'm here as always with dimitri kavigan as well as a fantastic guest author and documentarian dean arnold uh, dimitri how are you
1: i'm doing wonderfully this week uh it has been a very eventful week in fact uh, on twitter on the social is on it's been almost a, a cold war in itself, and. Uh, Mostly even on the American front, but yeah, so far we've had some interesting news that we've picked up along the way, just to speak to you guys about. And uh, yeah, we have a wonderful guest here today with us, um, uh, Dean Arnold. And Conrad, would you like to introduce our new guest to the audience?
0: Yeah, as I said before, Dean Arnold is an author documentarian. He, he's written his most recent book, Unknown Empire, uh, covering Ethiopia uh, and the arc of civilization. And, you know, he's been there multiple times. He's, of course, has a storied career of uh, writing and uh, journalism and documentarianism and, you know, covering history and all sorts of fantastic topics. So, uh, Dean, how are you this evening? I'm doing
2: great. Great to be with you. I, uh, my uh my stage name my author's name is Dean W Arnold I, I put the W in there my regular name is Dean Arnold and at church I'm known as the reader
1: Gabriel that's wonderful and I I have this I have this image of you uh So every time I watch an interview with you or read some of the, some of the excerpts from your book, for example, I, I always come up with this image of saying a modern Indiana Jones. Is that, is that a correct way of viewing you? And even, you know, throughout your sort of storied career, like traveling to Africa, exploring, speaking with the locals, like investigating.
2: Yeah. There's a little bit of of that. Not, uh, I mean, just, just a little bit in terms of like going to Africa and that sort of stuff. And I went out to 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 England to write a, a movie script or two. Um, uh, in, in spirit, I'm I'm kind of an Indiana Jones kind of guy. I've done some journalistic enterprises, and I've taken on the powers that be, and I've done some other things like that. So there's a little, little bit of truth to that, but I wouldn't I wouldn't go too far.
0: Well, we're big fans, and I encourage everybody to follow him on Twitter. Of course, uh, Dean Arnold, you, you'll be able to find him on our pages. We've you know, retweeted and shared his content but uh let's uh we've got all sorts of things to talk about whether it's crazy you know alex jones uh, kanye west interview as well as things going on on the ground in ukraine as well as actually this might not be as much on everybody's mind but things are going on in ethiopia and uh we have dean here a ethiopia expert if there ever was one and so dean if you maybe want to introduce your book what your experience with ethiopia is and maybe kind of talk about why it's relevant to you know christians today
2: sure um Let me just start by saying, uh, uh, man, I'm trying to get my book in front of Yay. It's the perfect book for Yay, aka Kanye, um, because uh, it deals with uh, uh, authentic uh, Black identity. Um, It deals with uh, ancient Christianity in Africa. It deals with Orthodox Christianity. Yay calls himself Orthodox. It deals. It has. uh, Several chapters about Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and the uh, a genocide of the black community via abortion. Those are things Kanye talks about. It talks about who are the true Jews. It talks about the black Jews in Ethiopia. It talks about all the stuff that he's talking about. So I've I've got a few uh, contexts that I've worked, uh, but I'm trying to get it in front of them. But it, it's it's kind of like I wrote the book uh, just perfectly for Ye, and he just doesn't know it yet. Maybe Maybe he's reading it. Who knows? Um, But that wasn't your question. Your question was uh, uh, to introduce the book. It is a sweeping history of Ethiopia, which most Americans don't know much about Ethiopia. They probably know that it's a country in Africa. They don't know how it's any different from any of the other countries in Africa. Uh, Ethiopia has a 2000 year Christian history. Hardly anybody knows that. It's arguably and I think I've proven the book that it is the oldest Christian empire. Before that, it was a thousand years Jewish. Uh, And of course, we've got the Ethiopian eunuch story in Acts chapter eight with, you know, that cues us in on that because he was reading the book of Isaiah um, when he was trying to get understanding. Uh, And we also have the story of the Queen of Sheba coming to uh, visit Solomon. Uh, uh, Ethiopians believe that they had a child. So it wasn't just a friendly visit with tea. Um, And. So uh, we've got a thousand-year Jewish history. They claim to have the Ark of the Covenant, Um, and they've had uh, an emperor on the throne who claims to be in the line of Solomon up until, for for like 3,000 years, up until 1975 when Haile Selassie was... uh, down um so they, there's just all these amazing things about Ethiopia that your average Christian in America doesn't know about when I tell them those things I just told them they suddenly perk up or they're like wow that's fantastic I never knew that well I didn't either until I got exposed to it and then started digging some things out so it's it's a sweeping history of all those things that also talks about uh, recent uh, uh, history in terms of uh, two different invasions from Europe. The largest invasions of Africa, uh, uh, one in 1890 by the Italians, uh, another one followed up by Mussolini in the 1930s. Uh, both invasions were repelled by the Ethiopians, and the Ethiopians continue to this day to be the only African country that has never been colonized. And they claim to never have been defeated by anyone ever in their, you know, uh, multi thousand year history uh, they're, they're, they're mentioned in Genesis chapter two, uh, as Cush. So they've been around for a while.
1: It is very interesting, uh, Dean that you mentioned the fact that, you know, the modern, modern African-American, uh, person would like to see like a history beyond say the West coast African slave trade. And the fact that, you know, their culture is, you know, so it is so rich with music and dance and all these, uh, things, which, you know, Honestly, are, are coming to the forefront today, at least from the 90s and 80s, and so it's a very musical culture. But as well as Kanye, of course, being a musician, a rapper himself, or yay as he as he's known known for now, just wanted to mention the fact that well, there is this there is this identity for uh, the black African, I guess the black African world that goes far beyond. And not, not saying all sub-Saharan Africans are from Ethiopia, but there is this. Actually, this lost kingdom, as you mentioned, that has this ancient Judaic, like literal Hebrew lineage, Davidic, you know, almost Davidic, you could say, that goes back all the way back to the Old Testament to the BC, and of course, in the, in the in the AD, they are deeply Christian and remain so. And I think just most modern African Americans simply either look by that or. Maybe there is a certain almost conspiratorial attempt to sort of hide this history away from the black African-American community in a way, like, you yeah. know, I hide don't there. Know
2: if it's yeah. the, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. conspiratorial or not, but it's it's definitely there. You know, most African-Americans think that to, to go ancient, they have to go Muslim. They don't realize that many centuries before Islam ever got to Africa, Christianity was very uh, uh, strong uh, in Africa, in Ethiopia in particular um and uh the oldest Christian Empire as I as I you know said it, uh, and it was Kush Ethiopia was one of the four great empires in the early uh you know second third fourth century you know along with Rome and a couple of others uh so a very rich history that any African-American should be quite proud of I just don't think they're aware of it you know I don't know if it's a conspiracy or not
0: no, it's definitely um one of those things, and there are you know, in, there are, in America, there are some mission parishes that are doing a good job of, you know, revitalizing the legacy of, you know, African saints and, uh, you know, saints like St. Saint Moses, the Ethiopian, and John Gerada, the Ethiopian eunuch, St. Caleb of Axum, and others. But I think it's something interesting that on this podcast, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the martyrdom of Tsar Nicholas II and his family, and that being a, representing a true end of kind of the roman christian legacy you know the fall of the of the christian emperor of the constantinian legacy from constantine to Tsar nicholas ii and in many ways i've actually i don't know if i've said it on the podcast before but i view a similarity to that with, with halle selassie when his um when the emperorship there finished and like you said the oldest christian empire in the world you know ceased to be an empire and in some regard embraced you know quote-unquote liberal democracy and i think that uh that said a lot about uh, kind of where, how much globalism had kind of ascended over our, our world today. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, Dean.
2: Well, I think it's a tragedy. Um, you know, 3,000 years is a long time. You start with Solomon and Sheba. They have a son named Menelik I. Uh, he brings an entourage of uh, uh, Israelite royalty back to Ethiopia. and uh, And they've had a Solomonic emperor on the throne. Uh, nearly nonstop for 3,000 years. So it was a great tragedy when that ended in 1975. Um, It could have continued on. Uh, My book has several chapters on Haile Selassie. He was a great man. He's actually somewhat like Solomon, uh, uh, ironically. Uh, The first half of his life was saintly out to Christ and calling on God and the defeat of Mussolini and the powers that be. Second half of his life, not so much. He kind of strayed away. He didn't really stray away from uh his devout Christianity, but he became very control oriented. He became very paranoid. Uh he didn't uh loosen the reins enough for the country to develop and grow. And uh you know uh he could have done some things. You know, I, I'm I'm not really a Democrat, but I'll I'll say this to, uh, as a nod to FDR, you know, some people say that FDR saved us from becoming communists because he brought in those some of those programs and you know, kind of uh, allowed some some freedom and some flexing that allowed us to sort of progress in a way that communi- Communism didn't overtake us. Whether that's true or not, you can use that analogy for, for highly Selassie. He he did you know he kept things at a very strong monarchical micromanaging kind of level. He also kind of got too into himself anyway a lot of things happen second half is his life not so good and the fruit for that in large part uh is shown in the fact that uh he was deposed he was killed he had no successor and he it was replaced by a bloody genocidal communistic regime
1: yeah it does seem like in a lot of these nations and you mentioned the 1970s and uh I'm sure you know, Dean. Like you've uh, being a historian, uh, all around the world we've seen these uh, monarchies. I guess you can say the the major monarchies fell around the world t- the time of the world the first world war, and then you have all the monarchies which belong to say the second largest countries. You know, I wouldn't say second world, so to speak, but all the you know this Spain, for example, uh, Spain being one of the countries that restored monarchy, but you know Greece. Ethiopia, Persia all lost their dynasties as uh, around the 70s. It is interesting that Ethiopia, you know, maybe fall, a bit falls under the radar, as opposed to say something like the deposition of the Shah in Persia and Iran, and maybe the loss of monarchy in Greece and the coming of, to power of the junta and uh, things like that. It does seem like there is this uh, almost like a second wave of democratization after the 1920s in the 70s and 80s. And it's almost like, it's hard to say if this is like a worldwide thing. Possibly it is. Maybe um, just the, uh, maybe it's collateral damage from the Cold War. Because notice both the USSR and the United States are both s- democratic in their own respective ways. You know, one is liberal democratic, one is socialist democratic in a way, and they're both applying this pressure on all the monarchies in between. That's kind of how I had this view. Wouldn't you agree that there is a c- sort of coincidence there that all these monarchies begin falling in the seventies?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, certainly, there could be a, a zeitgeist that happened in, during those two periods, and it, uh, you know, we're the worst for it, but here we are.
1: Yeah, that's right. No, that, that's a very good point. Um, also, just the fact that uh, the, at least uh, I'm not sure what, uh, the opposition to to communism in Ethiopia, of course, after the fall of the monarchy was first and foremost the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which was the you know the, the local um the, the local predominant religion at the time. And it's I suppose it was similar to in Russia how, you know, after Tsar Nicholas II was was deposed and then put into prison and executed, the only opposition to communism essentially was Orthodoxy, which took the brunt of the hit, could you tell us a bit of how the communists exactly interacted with the um, with the uh, with the Orthodox uh, reigning church in Ethiopia at the time?
2: Uh, they they persecuted them and killed them, uh, and uh, when uh, when they were finally overtaken by the uh, Northern Tigray, uh, um, Tigray uh, People's Liberation Front, um, uh, fifteen years later, you know, early 90s, I guess. Um, then the the church was no longer persecuted and uh so that was a good uh freedom uh you know relief effort just a couple things i want to make a note of uh the orthodox church in ethiopia is vibrant and strong uh around half the country is orthodox christian uh then then you've got um about uh 35 muslim almost all the rest are protestant with maybe a one percentage Catholic. So it is a very strong Orthodox country. Now, when I visited the first time, of course, all the times I visited, but I was especially taken aback the first time, uh, the churches are full. The churches are overflowing with people and they're young people. um, Bursting thousands of people at, in any one church and they have these processions and they're there for hours. I was... I, I Really my jaw was hanging on the ground i, I you know I've been a, a zealous Christian in America all my life. i have never seen anything like it. It's very encouraging. <laughs> my book uh uh the premise of my book uh, there's several premises, but um the main premise of the book is that Africa is the continent of the future because of birth rates. Just to tell you a little story, uh you know, I got one of the reasons I wrote the book. So I got to praying one day, I'd I read uh, Pat Buchanan's book, "The Death of the West," which pretty much makes a uh, um, impeccable case for the West dying because of birth rates, and Asia and particularly Africa is where things will be. And so I started praying, and I was like, "Well, Lord, where's where's the future of Christianity if it's nowhere in the West?" So I tried to. I took an inventory of nations. So I was like, "Well, there's Russia. Well, Russia at that time had." birth rate of 1.1 a replacement is 2.1 and no one has ever recovered from a 1.3 low birth rate so Russia uh, was not a candidate for Christianity in the future uh, Greece has just as bad a problem with their birth rate well, what I've been I'd spent a summer in South Korea a lot of Christians in South Korea they're Protestant but their birth rate plummeted from 6.1 down to 0. 0.9. And uh, so they've totally bought into the uh, secular, worldly uh, thinking on birth control. Uh, and uh, so that wasn't any good. Uh, so I kept, look, I looked around South, South America, some of these Catholic countries, maybe, maybe that's where the future is for Christianity. But all the Catholics have given it up, too, and their birth rates are not high. Africa has an average birth rate of around five or six children per woman. It's the only place where you have that high birth rate. And so Ethiopia is the only historic Christian country in Africa. So after all that surveying and praying, I determined that the future of Christianity and Christendom may very well be Ethiopia. So I felt like it was worthy of spending three or four years writing a book about it. And uh, so that, you know, that's how we that's how I got to where we are today. Um, There's a huge full court press attempt by the United Nations, the Bill Gates Foundation, and all mutual suspects to lower the birth rate in Africa and Ethiopia. All sorts of programs, abortion, birth control, conferences, you know, grants, just all sorts of stuff. It's terrible. It's sinister and it's evil. My book talks about all these things. Basically the book, because I use story structure, I'm a, I I write movie scripts and I have a, a, a book, an unpublished book I've written on story structure, but the, the, the villain and the, first third of the book is the Italians invading Ethiopia, trying to colonize it with the largest invasion, European invasion of African history. And a Ethiopian emperor named Menelik II, who's in the line of Solomon, uh, he gathered together his forces and routed them, destroyed them. And this is like in the 1890s. And uh, he became a household name across the world. He was on the cover of harper's magazine which was the time magazine of the day kid uh, kids in in america were named Menelik. It, it was an amazing thing so that's the first third of the book the second third of the book the uh protagonist is Haile selassie who was squared up with uh mussolini benito mussolini the famous dictator from italy and they have a long war and i use that uh that bit of conflict to kind of make my points and Get information that I'm trying to get in and tell the stories and get the ancient history as well and weave in the ancient history. But the third part of the book is kind of a bait and switch on the liberals. And uh, the the third part of the book, the protagonist is Ethiopia and Africa and their high birth rates (laughs) and how they're going to carry civilization into the future with a traditional morality. And the antagonist is Bill Gates. You know Bill Gates and what he represents and the eugenics movement and the Planned Parenthood stuff that he's associated with because his father was chairman of Planned Parenthood and uh, and the connection with the United Nations efforts and all those sorts of things. So that's how the kind of the book kind of rolls out. Uh, but the premise is the future of the world is Africa because of birth rates. Ethiopia is the cultural leader of Africa because it's the only one with an ancient script ancient christianity and so uh here we are
0: no i think that's uh i I think bill gates is an enemy of this podcast as well we can very much agree with that and i think and so much of that is there's so much to unpack this book i really want to read the entire book and we're gonna have it linked in the description below if they're listening on substack or youtube you know we'll have it linked but i want to uh Ian, There's an audio. Uh, There's an audio about book. the Tigray. Awesome, awesome. You talked about the Tigray Liberation Front. Uh, that name sounds familiar to anybody who may be paying a bit of attention to the current conflict. That's a bit wrapped up. But I want to preface my question a little bit. When I first started paying attention, when I first heard about this conflict, was when there was a big massacre. I believe this was a few years back at a monastery somewhere in Ethiopia. It may have been where I believe they say the Ark of the Covenant is. And so, if you could maybe explain a bit of the current conflict that's what its status is, maybe what it's about. And don't be afraid to tie in any of the, you know, archaeological or metaphysical or religious, you know, ideas and claims. We we, we don't separate those two ideas on this podcast. So I'd just love to hear uh, if you could break that down for the audience a bit.
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a ongoing civil war in Ethiopia. Uh been going on for, what, three or four years. Uh, it has uh, possibly getting close to a, a peace agreement. There's been talk and chatter we don't know yet Uh, it's a tragic development although there's a part of me that wonders if god uh brought it along to spare them from getting the vaccine but Tigray is the ancient portion of modern ethiopia uh where all these things uh, took place that I've, i've been talking about and the book talks about the capital or i the capital is Mekele, but uh, the, the ancient kind of Jerusalem city of Tigray is Axum. I've been there several times, uh, and they do have a, uh, a church there that claims to have the Ark of the Covenant in it. Uh, you know, the, uh, Ethiopia has like seventy tribes and dialects, so Tigray is one of those seventy. Uh, Tigray is, um, I think, it's about. 5 million, Ethiopia is 110 million it's the second largest country in Africa uh, there is, a, I think the largest tribe is called the Oromo um, and they're like half Muslim, half Christian there's the uh, Amara which are largely Christian but there's a, a lot of the tribes and, uh, which are kind of like states they, they would be Muslim uh, some of some of them are majority Christian. Most of the Christian ones have a low birth rate right now, which is alarming. The Muslims continue to have children, and they they tell the UN and Bill Gates to take a hike. So the UN and Bill Gates more time on the Christians. They feel like they can make more progress. Tigray has one of the higher birth rates. I'm very excited about that, and I hope they can keep it. But it's uh, it's a it's a hard it's a hard fight and it's a hard battle. The communists took over. In 1975, as we said, there was a horrible coup. uh, coup. There was a bloody genocide of over a million uh, Ethiopians. Finally, they were defeated under the leadership of the Tigray leadership, People's Leadership Front, TPLF. And, you know, the the country was thrilled to get rid of this evil dictator, this genocidal regime. But the new regime uh, was you know, it was authoritarian. And you know what they say, sometimes you need a strong man in certain situations to hold things together. And um, May- M- Malus, uh, that was the name of the leader, he, he was able to hold the country together. He died after about 12 years. And after he died, the uh, kind of the bonds kind of dissolved. And so the tribal divisions really reared their ugly head. And the Tigray or TPLF political party uh, still held a lot of power and they held it in some authoritarian ways. And the other tribes started to resent it. And they were finally voted out. And they got a new leader finally that was not from Tigray. That's the present uh, Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, who is a very uh, fascinating and strange character. I'm not sure what to think of him, but. uh, the, you know, one of the things that was happening is that all these uh, churches were getting burned down by Muslims and priests were being killed, and it didn't seem like the Abi regime was doing enough about it. I think that was one of the, the uh problems. Uh, uh, but anyway, one thing led to another, and war broke out uh, when Tigray uh, tried to elect their own leaders, and uh, the Abi regime uh, didn't recognize that. And that was sort of led to the present conflict. It, it t- depends on who you talk to. I've got Ethiopian friends on both sides of the aisle, and they are very, very, virulently opinionated on their side of the aisle. And there's a lot of propaganda going around. So I don't know that I'm an expert on it, but unfortunately, I know most, more, probably more than just about anybody. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Dean, I want to you know maybe cut through a bit of the BS that I know because it's one of those. I'm not an Ethiopian expert by any means. I I like to on Twitter. I style myself semi-ironically as a World War Three analyst, and I think this front, especially as someone who's analyzing, I believe Christianity is at the center of a lot of these you know worldwide events. Whether it's like you talk about depopulation agenda or you know the satanic you know I think push into Ukraine against Russia, but I believe in Ethiopia, you know, I I've had a hard time kind of juggling juggling narratives and juggling what's going on when it comes to because on the one hand it seems that the Tigray region is a bastion of Christianity and ostensibly Abiy Ahmed is more in line perhaps with the Muslim factions, but at the same time, I've seen evidence and heard people talking about the Tigray uh, forces being funded by the West, being funded by the US to disrupt perhaps a more independent, you know, Abiy regime, you know, the African Union, I believe is centered in Addis Ababa, which was started by Muammar Gaddafi, who you mentioned Ahmed being a bit of a a crazy character, you know, Gaddafi himself being a very, you know, interesting, uh, fascinating character who ultimately was, you know, murdered by the by the US regime for, for better or for worse, for maybe paving a new path forward. I'm wondering, you know, could you maybe uh, give us a perspective on not saying you tell us which side is good or bad, as it would be, but maybe give a perspective on the international factions aligning and, you know, maybe the Christian perspective on the ground?
2: Yeah. um, uh, First, I'll just tell you that my natural inclination is to go towards a religious struggle. Uh, And I want it to be a religious struggle in some ways because that's that's territory that I understand a little bit better and it would make it easier to understand it that way. And so I've tried to sort of shoehorn it into a Christianity versus Islam or Christianity versus secularism kind of battle. I I haven't been able to successfully pull that off. I'm not sure that that is what's behind it. It's got to be a factor. Tigray is the ancient Christian uh, strong house power of Ethiopia, but Ethiopia, uh, orthodox christianity is vibrant and strong in addis ababa and in other uh, many other parts of ethiopia so uh you can't really slice it that way i don't think but i think it's a factor uh i am also uh reluctant to say that it looks to me whenever you know, say so the us is is a uh, has been quite involved in trying to help tigray um, and so whenever the U.S. is doing dirty deeds in foreign countries, you always have to, you know, have a, an eye of suspicion. You know, what are they up oh, to? Yes. And why, why, what is their motive and why are they doing this? And I think a plausible answer to that is that Ethiopia, like many other African countries right now, has been aligning itself a lot with China and Russia. And as we know, the larger battle in our world right now is the West versus the bricks. And China is very involved in Ethiopia, very involved in building infrastructure and dams and roads and, you know, uh, trains and and uh, all sorts of things. I, I saw it firsthand when I was there several times. And I don't think, the U.S. does not like that. And so I would not be surprised if their empowerment of Tigray is motivated Uh, to uh, destabilize the country that they don't like kind of moving off the reservation. That doesn't mean Tigray's uh, ultimate reasons for uh, trying to gain back leadership of Ethiopia is wrong, uh, but it certainly could mean that part of their help comes from ulterior motives.
1: And for those of you who may not understand any listeners, what BRICS are, like Dean just mentioned, BRICS is a very important acronym. Like, we're going to hear it more and more in this upcoming multipolar world, which we're sort of, uh, you know, this unipolarity is breaking down and we're becoming a lot more widespread. So BRICS essentially stands for Brazil. Russia, India, China, and South Africa at least thirty twenty years ago, these were the five leading economies of the so so to speak upcoming world it's the second rate economies which were you know contending with the primacy of the United States, the United States having the largest economy and still to this day you know the richest nation in the world, but of course, these next nations would form this I suppose, an unofficial conglomerate group, which gets together and, you know, the, the leaders of these countries, as well as, uh, you know, some of the economic ministers, they do discuss matters pertaining to the future of, you know, the future of the, the multipolar world and how all these uh, various nations will interact among themselves. So BRICS, of course, is an important abbreviation. Now, what's, an, what's also key here is BRICS, of course, has only five member nations, but there are other countries which want to get involved as well. So the abbreviation BRICS is, you know, Sounds very nice, but it may also include, for example, Dean mentioned Ethiopia would of course love to become would love to become a member of BRICS. So maybe it's uh, slightly far away from that now. You know, at, at the moment there's conflict going on, but other countries such as such as Iran, for example, you know, maybe not Saudi Arabia, but there are nations which want to get involved and kind of contest the, with the United States for you know economic prim- primacy around yeah. the world.
2: Key swing pieces right now uh, are Turkey. Turkey seems to be moving uh, towards the bricks and away from the West. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, is starting to uh, mm-hmm. look and smell like it's starting to make that turn. Maybe the biggest chess piece on the table right now is India, uh, which seems to be aligning with the bricks as well. So that's really um, that whole thing is is really what the storyline is on the, the largest, you know, kind of global global storyline is 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 uh when when that that alliance can basically uh develop its own monetary uh, system apart from the dollar and uh uh you know and basically just allow the u.s. from being able to have such a huge military because it has the uh, u.s. it has the reserve currency
1: yeah very well spoken and Um, just as you mentioned, like the fact that, you know, you like to view it through a religious lens, and I completely agree, and kind of maybe in my amateurish way, I do see Ethiopia as, you know, being between sort of the horn of Africa and Egypt, and um, amidst all these great, really populous Muslim nations, and right across the Red Sea, frankly, is the Hejaz, and you have the Arabic Peninsula. So, in a way, but you know you were just saying the population of Ethiopia is so great it it has literally a larger population than all of the arabic nations combined in that hejaz area in that arabic peninsula which i think people don't really uh kind of they don't see ethiopia as a counterbalance maybe to the to the muslim world in that area but it it really is it it's it could be a future say counterbalance to the power of egypt the power of saudi arabia which as we know saudi arabia is a like an even closer ally of the United States than Ethiopia is. So yeah, sure. Tigray may be cooperating with the State Department in some in, in some respects, but nothing so, nothing like the cooperation between, say, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the, the U.S., which have these long term military deals of you know which of uh uncomparable you know scale and size. Correct. Yeah, and also the, another thing that geographically people may <clears throat> you know just. Bring up a map of Ethiopia, and you notice that Ethiopia, it seems that its one, its, its singular weakness seems to be the uh, access to the sea. It does seem to be landlocked for whatever historical reason. Um, it doesn't seem to have access to the Red Sea, which, uh, of course, you know, comes into the Suez Canal, which connects the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, uh, which. Of course, this is key to world trade and Ethiopia having such a, you know, the largest military in Africa, having all the second, as you mentioned, second largest population in Africa, not having access to that, to that really key sea is, it's almost like a, um, not providential, but it seems, it seems like a, like a stifling, like a, like a, like it seems that this needs to be resolved in some way. Similar to how Serbia at the moment doesn't really have access to the, you know, to the uh, Adriatic and the Mediterranean. It's, it's a little bit bizarre.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, th- that that's beyond my pay grade. You know, I do know that Ethiopia. One of the ways they uh, addressed that problem is they've developed the largest uh, airline in Africa, Ethi- Ethiopian Air, um, and so you know they they're able to do a lot
0: of uh, trade and uh, uh, you know shipping and stuff uh, via air as opposed to shipping. I've experienced the largeness of Ethiopian airlines. I was once in a Turkish air lounge and half of the flight calls were for Ethiopian airlines, which I thought was very interesting. But uh, when it comes to uh, Ethiopia, I know they have had a historic relationship and the struggle against Eritrea, who is also a uh, Oriental Orthodox country. For those who may not be Orthodox listening, Ethiopian Orthodoxy is not currently in communion with, you know, Russian, you know, other Eastern Orthodox communities, or Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, Antiochian Orthodoxy, as they are, what we call non chalcedonians they reject the Council of Chalcedon, which you know occurred you know a long long time ago before even the Greatism I believe it was in the sixth century and 230, well, I think or was it the fifth century yeah the uh you're correct well, 50, and they are uh,
2: this was four thirty maybe
0: yeah, so uh yeah Dean, if you could maybe you know when it comes to all that kind of stuff maybe break down the relationship between you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia as both, you know, Christian nations. And then you could talk, maybe tell us a bit about the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, what you what you think about it.
2: Yeah. All right, two very different topics. Sorry, sorry. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, and I got to spend time with the leaders of the uh, largest seminary, Orthodox seminary in Ethiopia. One of the key figures in my book that I interviewed was the head dean of the largest seminary. And I also got to spend time with uh, the, the second highest person there at the seminary, who was actually from India. Um, and he is now the head of the uh, largest seminary in, in, in southern India. So I got to know these guys, and, uh, uh, and I know a little bit about it. Um, they have a good relationship with Russia. Uh, there has been many back and forths uh, of Russian Orthodox clergy. An Ethiopian Orthodox clergy, um, and so that's a that's a good thing. Technically, not in communion. They uh, we we've talked about this at length, and I I talk about it in my book for a few pages. I don't go I don't go into it too much. I think people could only handle so much. But um, the uh, they they talk about uh, functional unity as opposed to uh, technical unity, and so there is a a, a desire to have functional unity with the uh, Eastern Orthodox, but, uh, we, we aren't in formal technical unity with them. I actually got a hour long podcast with my Bishop, Archbishop Alexander, who talks about these things at length. It was, it's a fascinating interview, but, uh, Eritrea, uh, is in communion with Eritrean church is in communion with the Ethiopian church. I think at least they, 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 they're all the same thing for a while. Then they got separated politically. That was a bloody mess. One of the uh, one of the unfortunate parts about Eritrea is that they're they majority Islam now, and they've got a lot of influences that aren't good like that. That have uh, uh, caused problems, and they're they're kind of one of the most tyrannical uh, countries on earth right now. Um, so. Eritrea, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, have, have got a lot of problems and a lot of good things now. You're going to come across Eritrean Orthodox Christians in America and they, if they heard me say that, they would be furious. But, you know, that's just my take on it. Ark of the Covenant. The uh, Ethiopian church has a very sacred document for them. It's called uh, the Kibern Agost. It's the story of the Ark of the Covenant being taken from Israel by Solomon's son Menelik from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. It's a fascinating tale of it sort of being stolen in the night, and they fled away and ran away, kind of like Moses fleeing from the Egyptians. and And it's a uh, it's a rather interesting story. Kind of, you know, a lot of people kind of like levitating over the Red Sea, and a lot of a lot of things that would make it hard for. Some people to believe in it. Uh, I don't have necessarily a problem because I'm not a uh, um, modernist. Uh, I'm I'm open to uh, miraculous activity, but technically, the the, the Nagast is not scripture for the Ethiopians. It's just a very revered book. It's kind of their uh what would be a it's somewhere kind of between a story between their George Washington story our George Washington story and our uh, Knights of the Roundtable story. You know, um, it's uh, kind of legend, kind of historical. But they take it very seriously. And all Ethiopians believe the Ark of of the Covenant is in Ethiopia. And most Ethiopians believe the Kiber Nagas story. Where I land in the book, I don't want to tell you too much, but I I do believe that Solomon and Sheba had a son and that he went back to see his father in Israel and brought a retinue of Israelite leaders with him to establish Jewish, the Jewish faith, the Old Testament faith, and the Solomonic, Davidic monarchy in Ethiopia. I do believe that happened. Uh, I've got reasons to believe that the Ark of the Covenant didn't get there for another three or four hundred years. So I don't Believe the Kebra story of in 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 whole. Uh, I believe parts of it. Um, uh, I do believe the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia today.
0: Well, that's fascinating, and uh, I think Graham Hancock, who's in the news recently, some of his work. I know he has something in the past about Ethiopia. So he's written, I think, about the Ark of the Covenant. So that's like big in the news today with his Netflix special. I don't know if it touches on that exactly, but is it part of it? Uh, I deal with his, uh,
2: (laughs) the, uh, the, uh, what's the title of his book? The something in the seal. Uh, uh, but, uh, it's all about the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. And, uh, he's got a theory of how the Ark got to Ethiopia that I think is pretty, uh, pretty strong. And I, I use that quite a bit, but I also deal with Ark, uh, with Grant Hancock as a person. I have fun with him and kind of pit him against other scholars, and there's things he gets right, and there's things he gets wrong, and there's reasons why he gets persecuted that are not valid, and there's reasons that are valid. Uh, He's a fascinating character, but I I think he ends up coming out smelling pretty good in my book, but he doesn't go unscathed.
0: Uh, well, maybe next year we'll have you and Graham on the show for a roundtable discussion. If you're listening, Graham, you know let's or let's, let's it. But uh, uh, Dean, I think that's uh, no, all fascinating. I want to get brief. I'm sorry if I'm packing these questions with too many disparate, uh, disparate questions. You're just, you- I think you're a wealth of knowledge. But I think I wanted to maybe get a quick response from you, maybe on what would someone who would say that the Ark of the Covenant supposedly in Mount Tabor.
2: Well. Um... The reason I can't believe that the Ark of the Covenant came in a thousand BC uh, from Solomon's son to Ethiopia, which is what the Kebra Nagast claims, is because I'm a East Orthodox Christian, and uh, Maccabees is part of our uh, canon. Maccabees is scripture, and in Second Maccabees it says that uh, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and swifted it away from Jerusalem and put it uh, in a cave on Mount Sinai. So you said Tabor and I get confused if they're the same mountain or a different mountain. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Maccabees says Sinai and not Tabor, but
0: it's uh, been a couple of years since I I believe you're right that it is on Sinai. I just probably misspoke.
2: Okay. But uh, because of that, Uh I don't I don't have a choice. I have to believe that, um, because I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Now the Ethiopians have all the same books that we do in the canon, except for take a guess. Maccabees. Maccabees. (laughs) (laughs) Um they have a they have a different kind of retelling of that story first second uh, uh uh, from Cuba or something I forget what what they call it uh, but they leave that part out um, anyway uh, so I'm forced to look for other uh, re- ways that the Ark of the Covenant may have gotten to Ethiopia that has to happen after about the 700s when uh, Jeremiah lived
1: well there's plenty of time between you know uh, you know the 500 BC and you know roughly uh, you know 1300 or 1400 when the legend of the uh of that journey was written. So I'm sure, you know, plenty of things could have happened just as, you know, uh, Constantine and Helen, they did find the cross 300 years after Christ's crucifixion, which, you know, that's still a quite a, quite a lengthy amount of time. So you never know how these things are, you know, how these things eventuate. And of course there was no prophecy of a Roman emperor finding, you Know Christ's cross, it just kind of, uh, by God's providence, occurred 300 years after you know his crucifixion. So, um, here, Christian history does have this interesting way of you know just occurring sort of before our very eyes, it's very alive, very much alive, I guess, in this new, um, Anno Domini age that which in which we live.
2: It'd be just like God to, uh, have uh, some obscure African nation have the uh, arch-
0: no, I think, uh. I think Ethiopia is fascinating. I really would love to visit someday. There's so many beautiful images, like you know they they've got monasteries on pillars, you know that rival Greece and these other places that are known for their. They've got more monasteries. On monasteries. On they've the got stairs. more
2: monasteries than any country in the world. They've got a thousand monasteries.
0: Well, you know, through our prayers, perhaps they can accept Chalcedon, and we can all be, we can all take communion at each other's churches in our lifetimes. You know, by the grace of God. But Day. we can talk Day. about Day. Ethiopia pray- forever. Dean, I want to get maybe your final, I was saying, we could talk about Ethiopia forever. I want to get your final thoughts on maybe two things. I want to get your thoughts. On, I know Ethiopia is perhaps entering a big struggle with even Egypt over the Nile River, which, I mean, there's all sorts of symbolism that we could get into there with their damming of the river and with all of that. So, I mean, I was maybe wondering if you had any thoughts on that, I was going to get your thoughts there. And if not, any final thoughts on the Ethiopian church on, you know, the place of Ethiopia in the world, I'd love to hear it. Then we're going to maybe ask you a bit of your thoughts on the current situation with Alex Jones and, and yay. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, uh, I, I don't have much to say about the Nile river and the dam. That's those are uh, geopolitical events that I just, I don't think I have any expertise on. Um, I'd be happy to talk about Alex and yay. And also the uh, Ukraine conflict. I've got a lot to say about that.
0: Let's head right into that. Then I'm thinking with, uh, I know yay said all sorts of things that, you know, we talked about on the show that we would talk about for a while, you know, we, <laughs> we, I think uh some people may be surprised to hear some of those, some people heard some heard things they may have heard for the first time, you know, some people that may have been paying a bit more attention. I encourage everybody read a lot of pa- uh, Dean did a great shout out of Pat Buchanan's death of the West. I encourage people read uh Churchill, Hitler, the unnecessary war, maybe a few other of his works before you angrily type something in our replies. But <laughs> when it comes to, um, yeah and Alex Jones, he talked about, uh, you know, Ethiopia. There was mention of black Jews. I think Alex backed him up on some of that. There's a mention of, you know, there's been struggles with Israel and Ethiopian Jews and allowing them in and whatnot. And uh, I think Dean is, makes a great point that Ye should read his book and, you know, maybe bring some of this kind of stuff to the fore. I want to, what you made that pitch at the beginning. I want to hear some more of your thoughts.
2: Well, uh, you know, let's talk about what is ye's doing amongst other things. You know, the whole thing about the the Jews and the true Jews and all that, I am uh, not sure about all that.
0: <laughs>
2: I think maybe it's going down a lost lost ten tribes or something. I don't know uh what what that's all about. I do I do agree with um uh, most thoughtful people who've looked into it, including Sol that uh, a majority of the people that call themselves Jews today don't have any abrahamic blood in them uh they come from kazaria which is ironically near the ukraine area they converted as a pagan nation to uh, judaism in like the 7th century a.d uh you have to you have to deal with sephardic jews which is a a very much a minority of current judaism to find groups that may have abrahamic blood you know and I'm not really a subscriber of the lost ten tribes theories, so I I don't know where he's going down that road. I mean, there are there are Ethiopian Jews from early as the you know 10th century BC. So you know, if he wants to say that that's why he's Jewish, you know, he'd have to prove that he's got some Ethiopian blood and that it comes from that northern Tigray strain. Uh, And I don't know that he's even knows about that, has thought about it or claims that, but it's okay. Um, I really think what ye has been doing here the last couple of weeks is he has decided that he's going to go for the jugular on absolutely the most sacrosanct sacred cow uh, narratives in our world today that cannot be uh, discussed. Uh, You know, know, to criticize the Jews, to say the Jews have too much power, uh, to say that there were good parts of the Nazis, not just all evil, to say that there was good parts of Hitler, that he wasn't all evil, uh, to say that the Holocaust didn't happen the way it's uh, portrayed to us. You know, all these things are absolutely untouchable sacred cows, and he's going after all of them. And I think he's trying to make the point that none of you jerks really believe in free speech. Y'all talk about it, but, you know, my friend Elon Musk, thats I'm, I'm using Yeti's words, you know, and all the all, all you other people, you're going to shut me down because you don't really believe in free speech. You've got these sacred cows that you won't allow people to talk about. We can't have real discussions about it. Uh, what you'll do is you'll cancel me. And you'll censor me and you'll debank me. And I think he's just, he's fed up with kind of, you know, he's talked about pro-life and he's talked about abortion and black genocide. And he's talked about Jesus and all these things and all these things that are politically incorrect and correct and things that possibly could get you canceled. But he's just tired of playing around with it. Now he's just going to go for the big dogs and just talk about them and make his point that uh, uh there are certain things that will cause you to c- get canceled and debanked if you talk about them and here's the biggest ones and i'm talking about them let's just see what happens
0: no it's it's crazy and people have no idea what to do with it because part of you know being you know a celebrity and being a voice today is kind of very expertly avoiding you know dealing with some of these issues and other things but i think i think, uh, michael, I a, I think e. michael jones uh does a pretty good job of
2: getting to the root of it are you familiar with him
0: yeah. I've, I've, I've spoken to Dr. Jones. I'm friends with, you know, some people who have spoken to him. I was just going to make one quick point before I want to keep hearing what you're saying, Dean, you're going off. It's great. But I wanted to say one thing, you know, to Ben Shapiro, if you're ever listening to this, um, what the hell, man? Like, we, like I think it just makes a big point that you're saying that like somebody, you know, next thing you know, you know, people who are afraid of some of these questions, they immediately, whether you disagree with or agree with whatever Ye was saying, is it not suspicious that people immediately, someone, Ben Shapiro, who loved yay when he was saying the right things when he was hanging out with candace owens even liked wearing like the white lives matter shirt you in there supporting daily wire suddenly when he's a free man walking he's getting out there expressing you know pushing the limits of free speech clearly making a point you know saying that he loves everybody refusing to hate you know he he said he didn't hate mao and all these other characters there's none Not those aren't going to be the headlines but like you know whether or not you agree you got to realize like ben shapiro next thing you know, he's on this mic saying, I hope, I hope he doesn't hurt himself. I hope Yay is not suicidal. What is like, what is this Clintonian, like what, like you're calling in a massage strike, Benny, like we're watching you, man. And like, if anything happens to yay, you know, a whole lot of people are going to know something's up. I just want to make that point. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh
2: Michael Jones, no, uh, Mike, Michael Jones uh, gets to the root of it. And this is, this is so politically incorrect that even Yeh's not talking about it. Certainly Alex Jones never would. Yeh's probably not talking about it because he just hasn't been enlightened by it enough to uh, to bring it. He, he sort of does. Um, but Michael Jones says that the, uh, you know, of course, the reason the Holocaust is so sacred is it's needed to be, uh, that narrative is necessary uh, to make the Jews the biggest victims in the world. And therefore you cannot criticize the Jews. And the Jews do have an enormous amount of power. And they don't want to lose that power and they don't want to lose their narrative on the Holocaust. Just side view, I don't believe that the Holocaust didn't happen. I just don't think it necessarily was six million. Maybe it was one million. Maybe we don't know what the number was, Uh, but it's not the worst genocide in the history of humanity, even in the last hundred years. But it is is, uh, driven and pounded at us so hard from every angle to make it look like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. And... Therefore, we have to protect the Jews in a particularly uh significant way, and they should they should never be criticized because we don't want that to happen again and uh it basically uh makes them a protected class well they they do have more power per capita than any other group. Why is this, and what's going on? Uh, I don't know why they have so much power per capita is it talent I don't know um but Michael Jones goes back to the root. He's got a pretty seminal book, uh, of "The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit," and he he gets to the root of it is in um, the gospel story at the crucifixion, when Pilate uh, says, "Here's your king," and the Jewish leaders and the whole Jewish people rise up and say, "We have no king but Caesar." And uh, we want him crucified, and may his blood be on our our heads and on the heads of our children. So what that did is basically the Holy Spirit, in in any form that he was existing in the Jews at that point, completely left. Left a void where demonic forces come in. And now you've got a people group who is wandering and without, Jones calls it Logos, it's, it's Christ. And uh, until that changes, uh, they're going to be uh, constantly sort of wandering and away from the truth and involved in all sorts of um, sinister plans like New World Orders and uh, eugenics and uh, transhumanism and uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, this, is the, this is the root of it, basically Christ versus Satan. Uh, those who accept christ and those who reject christ and here it is today and it, and it manifolds it, in its geo in its uh external and geopolitical ways uh, that is the ultimate politica, politically incorrect thing to say but michael jones does it in, uh, quite a uh, scholarly factual way um, that i think is compelling uh and it's a it's a tough message and you're probably not going to make a lot of money if you say it a lot
1: yeah, of course. And I, I've i tweeted about this a couple of times, but uh, Ye is, you know, Ye calling himself an Orthodox Christian and, you know, uh, sort of coming at this issue from a Christian perspective, from what he deems. But mind you, he doesn't he doesn't even have the full picture, essentially. I think it's Orthodox Christianity, as you know, Dean, that has the full perspective on the issue at hand. Like, uh, you know, figures such as Hitler, the Third Reich, the, the average secular, maybe agnostic or uh, Roman Catholic Protestant fascist would not have the full um, sort of idea that maybe Solzhenitsyn would have had, you know, in his book 200 Years Together, which is uh, this, uh, this perspective that, look... Uh, the Orthodox Jewish community, this people group uh that you know claims to have ties to ancient Israel they have a particular you know um they are you know they have particular objectives and their objective is of course to um you know to await their Messiah and when their Messiah arrives you know he's going to rule from israel now this of course to us Orthodox Christians is not just unacceptable it is uh it is a scary idea it is frightening in the fact that they Character of the Messiah is, of course, for us the Antichrist, and um, I mean, you would probably agree, correct? Uh, I mean, it's it's likely. Yeah. So, and I mean, there's Saint John of Damascus and uh, Saint uh, Andre of Caesarea, on, he's one of the Saint Andre was the one of the only commentators of the Book of Revelations, actually, uh, and from the at least from the first millennium of the Church, because many church fathers didn't actually provide commentary to the Book of Revelations, but he mentions that, you know, based on the Old Testament. It's most likely, and St. John backs him up here. He says, most likely the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan, well, one of the ancient lost tribes that fell when when Assyria took the northern kingdom of Israel in, even before Babylon took uh, Jerusalem. So this was about uh, 700 BC, actually. And the tribe of Dan, the Antichrist will come from there, and he will be, I guess, by bloodline, uh, an ancient Israelite. But what that means today, of course, the tribe of Dan fell you know. Two thousand seven hundred years ago, it's completely lost. But I guess the Antichrist by blood will be uh, Jewish, you could say, or an Israeli. So in in a way, uh, we are Orthodox Christians around the world, saints included, have always kept a keen eye on this particular tribe of people and have always monitored as to you know, um, well, what exactly are they doing? You know, what are what are their, what are their opinions on say the current events? And you know, this of course uh, would explain some of the restrictions past orthodox countries had on, say, uh, Jewish economic trade and things like that. It wasn't a blatant anti-Semitism that, you know, people say, well, it's just racist. No, it's not a racist consideration. It's, uh, firstly, as like Dean likes to say, it's a clearly religious one because we understand, you know, these people, as Dean said, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit left them a while ago. Their their religion of Judaism is no longer um, related to that Old Testament lineage, um, it's it's complete, It's a completely something else. It's a sort of like a form of paganism in a sense. But, of course, uh, Ye, for Ye to get from where he is now to you know kind of a deeper dive, he would need to really read about maybe even Ethiopian history or even the Eastern Orthodox perspective on the matter. But, I mean, there is a straight line from there to there, so who knows uh, where he'll take it.
2: Yeah. A um, couple things to say. If uh, certain people get a hold of this podcast. Um, I do believe that uh, a certain amount of Jews in Germany and other places have been targeted and have been hated and murdered and killed and persecuted uh, specifically because they were Jewish. And uh, this is the heinous and horrible and terrible thing and should be condemned in the strongest way. I also happen to believe that the same thing happened to Armenians in the uh, Armenian Holocaust. And Greeks uh, and the same thing has happened to Orthodox Christians. The same thing has happened to Chinese in the uh, Cultural Revolution. Uh, the same thing has happened to many peoples, and it's always terrible, and it's always evil, and it should always be denounced. Uh, I just don't think that the Jews have a particular uh, you know, copyright on that uh,
0: terrible um, scenario. No, I think uh, I think I think this has been some great dialogue, and I mean, people just need to read. As Michael Jones will even say, you know, First Thessalonians two, you know, fourteen through sixteen. I mean, I think this is before you just again angrily, you know, condemn anything we say. This is just examine the language of Scripture, the language of the fathers, and we're you know we're not. We're, let's say we're not going full John Chrysostom in any respect here. And I think now um, you know, it's such a, so, so much interesting stuff, you know, is being. Is, is happening with this, you know, big, huge podcast blowing up everywhere. And <laughs> I think it's important, I believe, as, uh, you know, Dean mentioned the Greeks and so many of these people who've experienced, you know, equal, you know, hardship throughout, you know, the recent memories and the narrative kind of dominance that so much stuff has had. And it's just important as well to recognize that there have been publications of, of things like controversial documents, you know, like the protocols of the learned elders of Zion and sort of these things that you hear about and, you know, conspiracy documents, these were initially published alongside contents, like the lives of saints, like St. Saint Seraphim of Sarov, you know, in, in times like Russia. Yeah. And, and there's important, and we, I talked earlier about them. I talked earlier. Oh, go ahead, Dimitri.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to mention just like a quick, a quick note, whether or not the protocols of the elders of Zion are fake or real. fact of the matter is they were published almost in the same year alongside The initial first publication of the lives, the life of Saint Seraphim of Sarov, which everybody loves, and I mean Saint Seraphim of Sarov is probably a top five, if not top ten, globally venerated Orthodox saint at this point. But his life only came, only came to be published um, alongside the protocols by the same person, an Orthodox Christian layman named. Uh, Sergei Nilus, right? So if that's just some consideration to be given for an Orthodox Christian perspective on these matters. I'm not saying the protocols are real or fake, you know, It, regardless of that account, is that just that, you know, these important Orthodox texts, and this, of course, leads into things such as the current persecution in the Ukraine, where the Ukrainian SBU, the, uh, the Ukrainian feds, shall we say the Ukrainian equivalent of the FBI, are searching these Russian Orthodox and Ukrainian Orthodox monasteries, and what kind of literature do you think they will find alongside the life of St. Seraphim of Sarov from 1890? Yes, you guessed that They may they may find anti-Semitic literature among the Orthodox books, and things that they deem anti-Semitic, right? Because, of course, anti-Semitism, as uh, described by the ADL and all these other institutions funded by the State Department and other interest groups, are they very broadly label these things. But um, I'm going to assume Zelensky and his government will also broadly label any life of saint, which means, for example, St. Gabriel of Belestock from Poland, they will most likely label his life as just another piece of anti-Semitic literature. Whereas in reality, um, you know, that there may be actually some, I mean, well, depends on your perspective, but we as Orthodox Christians do believe in the life of St. Gabriel and as well as some of these other texts. So, Um, Yes, it doesn't really quite align with, uh, you know, being a pro-Semite, you know, and what will the Ukrainian SBU find? Who will they, you know, prosecute? Ukraine does have certain hate speech laws, right? Will they, uh, you know, prosecute and prosecute, I don't mean persecute in a religious sense, but literally take bishops and priests to court for publishing and spreading out anti-Semitic materials. Like, that, they could literally do that. I mean, most likely they'll do something even worse, but, like, shut down the entire, you know, sh- shut down entire monasteries, churches, and cathedrals, but they could simply take Russian priests and bishops to court for even having these materials. I think there's something to consider there.
2: Yeah, Lord have mercy. I hope, uh, hope it doesn't get to that, but uh, I think that kind of stuff is already happening.
0: I do. I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, the Ukrainian situation, the Ukrainian persecution, and also want to use what we were just talking about as a bit of a segue because we've mentioned a GM Davis book on the Antichrist on this in the past, and you actually have a new book coming out that's going to be about a you know partial preterist interpretation of Revelation, and the Orthodox perspective on on you know the Book of Revelation and things like that. So I believe that there's a lot of parallels and things to be drawn with the current situation in ukraine and things that could be you know seen as extreme christian persecution and that of course gets people thinking about the end times and of course we make no claims to know when the end times are on this show but we have dean here so we want to get his thoughts on that
2: yeah a lot of things to talk about um yeah i am working on a commentary on the book of revelation uh it's basically uh based on the works of uh a scholar named james jordan anybody familiar with james jordan He's a heard uh, of James Jordan before, yes. Yeah, he's a biblical commentator, biblical theology kind of a guy. I find him to be brilliant uh, with his insights. And he had a stroke about six or seven years ago, so he's not able to take his 204 lectures on Revelation and turn them into a book. And so he's given me legal permission to do that. And so I'm. That's what I'm working on. And the book is, uh, I would call it a. Partial preterist interpretation, uh, that's a little misleading. It's a, I would call it a partial preterist uh, emphasis because while uh, Jordan, and he probably represents most partial preterists, Jordan believes that uh, Revelation has uh, double fulfillment, if not multiple fulfillment, but certainly the two primary fulfillments of Revelation are the end, the end times. We all know about that one. And the other Uh, major fulfillment is the near fulfillment. All prophecies have near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And the near fulfillment of the book of Revelation is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which completely ended the old order, the old creation, and brought in the new heavens and the new earth, quote-unquote, which is the church. And, And so when you look at the book of Revelation and its symbolism, you can actually make sense of it And uh, plug and play the various characters and things that happen in the dramatic events, starting with Christ and leading up to the destruction of his enemies uh, and the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, And that is, uh, it's just rich stuff. It's really phenomenal stuff. We're not saying that the book of Revelation doesn't also talk about the end times. It does. It's a mystical book. It's written by the Holy Spirit. And it has... Uh, layers and layers and layers of of interpretation but personally uh, it doesn't mean it's not the case I just don't think that the end -end is going to happen in the next hundred years I think it's going to be a few hundred if not a couple thousand and I think uh, you know we're, we're still in this long phase just like Christians were in the 1700s and the 1200s and the 700s and the 400s and but and, and so it's a little hard for us to really get at, at what the revelation means in terms of the ultimate fulfillment. It probably isn't relevant to, I think to current events in that way. Um, that's a letdown for the, like, Oh man, you know, I want to read revelation and I, I want to, I want to, I want it to talk about Magog and Magog and, you know, that's Russia and Iran and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, if you just spend your time, most of your time talking about the near fulfillment, which is AD 70 and all the incredible events that happened both with Rome and the Roman Empire and Jerusalem and the temple and Christianity, oh, the depths. Oh, there's so much to talk about. And it's so edifying. It's so fulfilling. And, uh, and so that's what I'll be talking about uh, with that. That's, that's something that makes sense, that you can make sense of it. It's uh, logical, it's rational. Uh, it's, uh, it's plausible, uh, people can buy into it. The end time speculation I find to be, um, just too abstract. So when I first took on this project, I was just going to use James Jordan as kind of a, uh, one of my main scholars that I would quote, but I've decided to just make the whole book kind of about his take on everything. It's 1.6 million words, which I'm going to have to trim down to about three or four hundred thousand. There's uh, there's plenty to talk about. Um, But I also wanted to sort of make it, you know, like an orthodox interpretation. So I've I've read everything that's been written by any orthodox person uh, about Revelation. Well, you know what? They don't say
1: much. Exactly. Exactly. There isn't (laughs) much written. Yeah.
2: You know why they don't say much? Because they're uh, they're honest people. They're circumspect. They're not like Hal Lindsey and uh, Tim LaHaye and all these wild-eyed people in modern times who are constantly talking about the end times and, and constantly being wrong. Uh, they're, circums- they're circumspect believers, and so they, they talk about Revelation in a very sort of abstract way, well, you know, this is what sort of the concept of the Antichrist means, and here's what he'll kind of do at some point. We don't know when. And so when you read these commentaries, there really, really isn't much there. But what there is a lot to say about, and it's biblical, and it's documented, and it makes sense, and it's really cool, is the near fulfillment, which is how Revelation relates to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So that's where I spend my time.
1: Uh, I already mentioned Saint uh, Andre of Caesarea's commentary, but for any Orthodox listeners, uh, if, yeah, as just as Dean said, if you read Saint Andrew's or uh, uh, well, Andre's commentary on, on on the Book of Revelations, you'll notice he's making a really he's making a big deal out of simply linking the Book of Revelations to the rest of Scripture. So it's mas- it's mostly he explains things, but not in the way you would see maybe um, maybe Protestant or very popular exegesis explain. Like he doesn't actually give you his particular opinion on something. He just kind of links it to the rest of scripture, which I think the book of Revelation really it does tie into the rest of scripture perfectly, which is why it's canon in the, in the church.
2: Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, Andrew of Caesarea's commentary is really short. <laughs> it, because if you're circumspect, there's not a lot to say. He, he does uh, a few times here and there uh, nod. Towards the near fulfillment, and he talks about that just a bit. He mostly talks about later fulfillment. And since he's circumspect, he doesn't have a lot to say.
0: And that's what I found with most of the uh, Orthodox commentators. No, I think it's for people need to do if they haven't, you know, done their research and, you know, they need to look into, you know, the, the, all the fascinating details around the destruction of the temple you know, under the emperor. And then, you know, even later histories that kind of mimic this, like, I mean, I remember first learning and reading the documents about Julian, the apostate and, you know, the similarities with some of, with like some of the, like hit what his collaboration, you know, with the Jews at the time and their attempt to rebuild the temple and how he was, you know, literally blown up from the earth, you know, that, and then the similarities, which, you know, how the temple wouldn't be rebuilt after it was destroyed until much later. It was very, uh, those things are so fascinating to people who love history or Christian history yeah, know. there's a,
2: that awesome story where they tried to rebuild the temple and was it like 140? I think there was another time in like the 400s, but either one or both times, like fire from heaven down and destroy the whole project.
1: I think as as most viewers will probably, uh, you know, read and understand, you know, just as many of you people like when whenever we pick up the book of Revelations, it's, you know, you read it cover to cover. It's pretty captivating. And it's almost like it's very hard to understand for a person, you know, still. Um, learning about Christianity, maybe I, you know, it's it's even I think in cate- in cate- in catechism in Orthodox catechism when you're still coming into the church, it's not even recommended that the Book of Revelation is frankly read because, um, and we don't even it's the only book in the church which we don't actually read at any um at any liturgies or any uh any prayer events in the church itself. It's kind of it's scripture which is read as well, which is kept there, but it's, uh, kind of like a reading in private in a way. It's, uh, you know, a document which you read about the future, but, um, its particular role in church liturgics is not played down, but it's kept, it's given its own important place in a way. Um, as as well as many texts in the old Testament, frankly are, are as well. Like they're not ex- exceptionally like present in, in say you attend an Orthodox Christian church and you expect a reading from revelations or a mentioning of revelations, but you won't exactly see it. You may see a couple of icons or the priest may mention out a sermon, but you won't hear prayers about it, hymns or things of that nature, which is very interesting. Yeah, so the, the and,
2: fulfillment is much more interesting. So for example, uh, a Jordan, uh, And other commentators identify, you know, you've got three, you got the sea beast, the land beast, and the uh, image of the beast, which are kind of the three unholy trinities uh, in the book of Revelation. And uh, in biblical theology or the imagery that Jordan's constantly uh, hearkening unto, uh, Israel is always associated with the land and the Gentiles are always associated with the sea. And, uh, so the, the sea beast is Rome and the emperors and the whole Roman empire of the time, which became antichrist, particularly in 80, 64, when Nero went from being a pretty decent emperor to being a uh, cruel, mm-hmm. horrible, terrible, tyrannical killer and persecutor of Christians. And the land beast is Israel, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, now the enemy of christ and the seducer of christians and all that kind of stuff and the image of the beast is the uh, jordan really gets down to saying that that really is the temple overseen by the uh, herods and the high priests which he says of the two horns the the uh, the land beast has two horns uh the land uh, the, the herods and the high priests and they uh the land beast, causes people to worship the image of the beast, which is this false temple that has been built and which is finally finished in AD 64. And when those two events happened, the the burning of Rome, which Nero blamed on the Christians in AD 64, and then the final completion of the false heretical temple, uh, where the high priest took his seat, uh, which sounds very familiar with passages in the epistles and what, Christ talks about the abomination of desolation all those things all that happens in AD 64 then you got these 7 years of horrible persecution of Christians and then you've got the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and you've got the end of the old created world uh the end of Israel the end of the old covenant and the bringing in of the new covenant and the church and the new heavens and the new earth well to me that's a whole lot more interesting than all well, this speculation that you know the land beast is you know this country and the, beast is russia and you know iran
0: and you know whatever the the topic of the day is no i completely agree i that being said i find it very interesting not in any kind of prophetic way that has anything to do with revelation i just think it's interesting that you know israel the land beast and then you know the, the enemies of israel ostensibly being the sea you could kind of align that almost with a Spenglerian history or whatever with you know russia being this kind of land empire and its enemy being britain the sea empire with you know imagining the orthodox empire as opposed to its you know its enemies not saying that has anything to do with the end times i just find the symbolism symbolism very interesting Mm. but again when it comes to uh when it comes to the early uh you know the early church and the early history is there any uh is there any uh, juicy details or some interesting uh when it comes to, you know, the the abomination des- of desolation and things that, you know, maybe a Protestant audience or people that are dispensationalists, they might not, they might, you know, they might think there's this, they have this really interesting, you know, eschatology. If there's any details you might want to drop that might make them reconsider.
2: First thing I'd say is that you got to get over the letdown that when you're dealing with revelation, you're not dealing with predicting the very end end because we don't know when that's going to happen. And uh, neither did people living in the 1700s or the 1500s or the 1200s or the 700s. Uh, But, you know, we all get all sorts of excitement, you know, by reading the book of Romans or reading the book of Acts or reading the gospels and getting all sorts of applications about how it affects us today. Why can't we do that with revelation? Why why does it suddenly have to just be uh, a book that uh, has nothing to do with history and what happened and and uh, why can't the fulfillments of revelation in history uh, be something that's edifying and exciting and and can guide us by example and application for things today so i think that's the first thing i would encourage people on uh little anecdotes i mean you know the abomination of desolation basically means when christ walked out of the temple that's when the that's when the abomination of des- desolation took place. The, 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 the temple became desolate because God was no longer in it. But it became particularly manifest when this false temple was fully completed in AD 64 by the Herod at that time. And the high priest took his seat in it. Uh, and And Christ had n- nothing to do with it. It was an abomination of desolation
1: yeah and just uh just a quick mention like uh, mentioning the abomination of desolation but it's uh this uh, i guess just as we discussed with jim Jatras on the previous podcast this you know reappearance of say these miniature antichrists throughout history figures such as napoleon you know being a super big freemason or julian the apostate or you know these various figures throughout history lenin being an apostate from orthodox christianity all these uh even nero himself frankly all of these like Almost uh, these fulfillments of the Antichrist's, you know, role from Revelation uh, appear throughout history, and also the Abomination of Desolation, like that. In in a sense, from an Orthodox perspective, would be Roman Catholicism. That is the Vatican, right? The uh, you know the Sea of Peter has been yeah, abandoned. Those are, all, in a way.
2: those are all things to look at. I, again, I find it to be speculation, and I find it to be not as interesting because I don't think it's as solid. I think the what what Jesus has to say in Matthew 24 and what Revelation has to say is largely the prediction of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's solid. That's biblical. That's that's something we can lock into. It's not speculation. Um and that's something, you know, Nero's Nero's name means in, in uh Hebrew letters, you add up the numbers, it's one hundred and fifty six. Well, that's solid. You know, that's not that's not weird speculation you know in terms of taking that and talking about you know current events you can do it and i'm not you know but to me it's along the lines of someone standing up in your gathering and saying i i just got a word from the lord and i want to share it well okay (laughs) you know i guess we'll listen but you know who are you
1: yeah i suppose i was just referring to the fact that you know throughout history for example the uh, we have certain, just as the church calendar, you know, events repeat themselves in a way. Like uh, every every Christmas, uh, Christmas occurs every year, and so does Easter. And there isn't a an Easter which is more important, say in nineteen ninety one, rather than it's more it's not no less important in two thousand twenty three, for example. And in the same way, uh, certain biblical events they don't repeat themselves, but we see certain uh, almost like icons of them, or you know, like the Orthodox Church was comfortable enough to say, proclaim, you know for example, proclaimed Julian the Apostate as this sort of, you know, this uh, figure of great evil. And so St. Basil would pray for his, you know, that God would take him away, you know, sort of for his demise. And then, for example, when Napoleon was marching with his enormous army at Russia, with this, you know, full of agnostics, essentially Protestants, Catholics, and, you know, atheists and Freemasons, that the Russian Orthodox Church uh, synodally announced to the entire Russian Empire that, look, uh, this is uh, very eschatolo- ex- eschatological, in a sense, that we need to prepare. Napoleon, you know, he is portraying himself as the Antichrist. You know, we need to take this very seriously, even though Napoleon wasn't the Antichrist; he was just a pretty wicked dude or a very, a, a, you know, a talented genius. But I, also, no, I mean, I, yeah.
2: I, I believe in repeating patterns, and I believe in multiple moments. I just believe that when you get at that level, it's 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 a good bit of of uh, speculation. It's, it's rather abstract. Uh, it's really not solid, uh, but the first century is really solid. When Jesus, when Jesus says, some of you standing here will be here when I return. Well, it's very solid to say that when he came in the clouds in judgment and destroyed all of the old covenant in 80, 70, there were still some of those disciples living. That makes sense. That's solid. That is biblical. That is logical. That is interesting to me. Uh, the figures who talk about it—Jesus, Paul, John—these are people we can trust who we know have a relationship with God and have some interesting things to say. When it when you take that that same pattern of fulfillment uh, and start talking about how it relates to Napoleon and how it relates to the Vatican and how it relates to current events today, it can be interesting. I just don't find
0: it to be very solid. I was just going to say, I was going to wrap it up with, know uh, well, some we talked about earlier. I think it's important to have this interpretation as a, uh, as very much of a, it's a very much an antidote to an unfortunate strain of uh, Christian eschatology we see, which has resulted in, you know, a very, very Zionistic outlook from, you know, modern American evangelicals. And I think that's, I think if, That's led to some unfortunate things that have happened today for, I think, through a silly and poor interpretation of the scriptures. So I hope that people can, uh, you know, get some enlightenment from from Dean's book and we'll be be looking out for it. But, yeah, Dean, is there anything that maybe uh, you want to say before we uh, before we sign off about all the things we talked about and then uh, then we'll wrap it up?
2: No, that's about it. Uh, You know, uh, I love Ethiopia. I was really happy to do that project. I think Ethiopia is uh, the land of God. That's what it was called back when when it was put in the uh, three thousand BC, uh, four thousand BC. The they all called it the Land of God, and it's still the Land of God, and it's uh, it's just full of vibrant uh, Orthodox churches, and uh, and it's a it's a fascinating place. I'm I'm very happy to be associated with it and be able to have spent time uh, writing that book. I, I'm not sure exactly what. Ethiopia's unique role is, uh, but uh, uh, it has something to do with preserving things of the uh, created order, uh, kind of like we preserve bones in the Orthodox Church, you know, relics. Even though it's not, it's not the ultimate fulfillment, which is the uh, resurrected body. Uh, it's the bones that you know are uh, going to be. Uh, transformed at some point. Ethiopia sort of preserves the rel- the the larger relics, you know, the ark of the covenant and the monarchy, the solomonic monarchy and you know all these kind of different things it's it, God God has used it as sort of a place for physical physical cura- cura- curating of physical things related to the kingdom of God. They'll they'll all tell you themselves. They'll be the first ones to say that these things that they preserve are not the ultimate things. You know, that the ultimate thing is Mary is the Ark of the Covenant and Christ is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, and these kind of things. But they, they nevertheless, God still has some sort of uh, interest in preserving of the physical matter. They also, believe, they also believe the garden of, of Eden is in Ethiopia. And I, I spent a chapter or two talking about that. I think it's a pretty plausible argument and, uh, that's worth that's worth looking at as well yeah this no, is uh, mentioned in, in uh, genesis chapter two as being around the rivers of eden
1: yeah i've always had the suspicion that you know eden was somewhere in that north africa middle east region you know and not just myself like i think it was lots of people wrote about this but it, it, very interesting i i will i will actually read further into your book dean and for for all of dean's books the link to his website which has all of his books as well as uh, some of the w- other works he's done and of course the future book and mention of it will be on the website we'll link it in the description below below the video you'll find it and of course we'll be tweeting about it as well and dean uh, how long exactly have you got left on the project now not to speed you up here but you know uh, in due time but uh w- w- what time frames are we looking at here
2: I tell people two to ten years, but probably closer to, <laughs> closer to two, probably.
1: Yeah. God bless. That's that's wonderful. We can't wait, frankly. It's been it's been a couple of years since someone in from the Orthodox community has released a you know a good work on Revelations, and I can't wait to you know actually dig my hands into it and yeah get a new perspective on the matter.
0: Great. All right. Well. Thank you so much, Dean. Uh, We hope to maybe have you on the show in the future because we could have talked about this, you know, for a billion hours. But uh, while you're here, everybody, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, .substack worldwarnow.substack.com. Like and subscribe wherever you're listening. Share this video with everybody you know. Like I said, we're going to have Dean's information below. Follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow us on Telegram, WorldWarNow_Telly. Uh follow me on Twitter, GNOME Rad. Uh follow uh Dimitri, uh, OCanonist. Canonist. Uh we'll probably have Dean's Twitter linked as well. He has some great tweets. And uh with all of that, uh I wanna thank everybody. Uh, this is a great conversation. Uh and uh God bless. God bless. Thank you. Twitter, guys, it was a privilege.